This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Coming up. A lot of people don't want to go, hi, I'm Jill, I've got gonorrhea. So, <laughs> should we cut that out and edit that and put it out? Well, don't put it in like yeah. I have it. <laughs> Great clickbait. A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. They're like a lovely little couple, except they're not. Can you believe it? It's been nearly two years since It's a Sin came out on Channel 4. Yeah, I mean, I've watched it a lot, so... I feel like it's been in my life for a long time. You're not the only one. It's been watched more than six and a half million times. Uh, (laughs) It's Channel 4's most binge-watched show, biggest drama launch ever. It's also led to a huge upsurge in HIV testing. And I believe it was the most nominated show at the 2020 British Academy TV Awards with 11 nominations. Thanks for that fact, Dan. Well, And today we have a very special guest on our podcast who is the inspiration behind the character Jill in the show, one of the most popular characters in It's a Sin, and she inspired the hashtag, hashtag Be More Jill, and people were blown away by her kindness and strength. And she's here today. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Hello, hello. Lovely to meet you both. No, stop. It's lovely to meet you. <laughs> this is such an honour. <laughs> this episode is going to be so deep, isn't it? Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. That's quite a tribute that you're saying something like that. But I think it's standing on the shoulders of all those people. Of course. And all the research and everything that was done in the 80s and a lot of activism and things that did go on. A lot of people's lives have been saved because of all that work. It's quite an amazing thing. And I can't even believe that you just said it's been seen. It's a sin's been seen by all those millions of people. It's quite incredible, really. Were you blown away by the the reaction to it as in as it, as it came out? Totally blown away. Honestly, didn't see it coming. Was worried whether it would even be liked at all, you know. And that's not just me, because obviously it was Russell T. Davis that had so much writing on it because it's his inspiration to write it all and all of that. And he knows, you know, he's going to get some sort of slightly controversial response to things that he writes. And he wants that. Of course he does, because he's a great writer and he doesn't mind a bit of controversy. But of course, it was a sensitive subject for him as well. So so he was blown away. I know that for a fact. He was blown away by the, re- the reaction of people. What you said earlier, Dan, was just about the HIV testing. So that's a really brilliant thing that's come out of It's a Sin, really. And the fund raising for the Terence Higgins Trust and the La La I should have done that earlier on. Yes. Oh, yeah, uh, course, the La yeah. T shirts and all of that. So it's been a roller coaster of a reaction from people. La yeah, wow. lots of people started doing it. And where did that come from? It came from a little thing we used to do on the youth theatres that kind of greeting, exactly like it was in It's a Sin. It was just a camp greeting. And the more camp it got, the more we loved it. <laughs> <laughs> La Exactly. Yeah, it's fantastic. Nice voice there. Thank you. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't hear those high notes. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with you. <laughs> you need to try. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Yay! Oh, that's lovely. So I've read loads about it's a sin and how accurate it sort of was to you personally. Did it feel a hundred percent? To be honest, it did. I mean, obviously, it was compact. So 
our situation with my friends that were ill, it went on for years. You know, Russell wrote it and, and was allowed to have five episodes and had a, tried to have eight episodes, didn't get his eight episodes. And then Channel 4 agreed to five. So it was very immediate and everything happened very quickly. And it was slightly further forward in time. So he set it in the early 80s. And of course, the whole experience in, in London and well, everywhere. But we followed on here from New York City. It hit New York City hard before it started to appear in the community, in the theatre community, in all communities, the gay community, slightly later than New York City. So we were seeing what was happening there and then getting terrified of what might happen here. So it went on for the best part of a decade I mean, more than a decade because we first heard it in the early 80s and then the triple combination therapy and the actual, not a cure, but control didn't happen until 95, 96. So it was much more, much more long time than it showed in It's a Sin, really. You can't get that, can you, in a, a five episode drama, the sort of endlessness of it. And you are in it, It's a Sin. I am. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> playing, playing Jill's mum. How surreal was that? That was so surreal. And I've lost my mum. My, my mum passed oh, away. Sorry. So she would have completely loved that, of course. Except it wasn't actually her. Although Russell did know my mum very well. Um, so it wasn't based on her as a real person. But it was based on a tolerant parent situation my parents were very tolerant um in life in general he had his steve to was cast as my husband and so we were set up as the the couple the family the parents that would hopefully be the parents of the future a bit more open-minded and that's what the director said to us at the time so that's how we were set up which was not exactly like my parents situation but my parents were very very open-minded particularly about my gay friends which is quite unique by the sounds of it from reading your book it feels like a lot of your friends didn't have that no they didn't i think a lot of boys at that time could not say that to their parents i think our podcast is about allyship between gays and non-gay people queer people and not queer and you're like one of the og allies really i love that well, how did you figure that out so early before the trend, I guess, because you know, it I, is kind of a it trend. It is, and I know, and I love that, and I know it's great, and I know that I loved my, and I still do, because, you know, but I, I lost those boys. I just think it's a great friendship between straight women and gay guys. I think that's a brilliant, for me, it's a fantastic bond. It's my most life-enhancing bond. I feel very lucky, actually. If you say it's a bit ahead of the trend, well, that's cool. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but I, yeah, I, I don't mean trend as in like, oh, it's trendy. Just... No, but it's, op it's opened people's eyes, hasn't it? Yeah. In, in the way that it's, it's a trend is something that's good and or can be good. And this is born of good feelings, happiness, joy. Gay men are brilliant fun. If you were a confident gay boy, back in the 80s or the 70s you certainly had a strong personality you certainly knew you know something about yourself and it was just different and exciting um we've sort of touched I'm trying to explain it but I, I i don't know myself 100 percent why <laughs> why you would bond with someone i think women and and gay men in particular have a bond because we both suffer at the hands of the patriarchy i think on a simple level that's I, a, I think we I share don't think that's a, a similar... simple level i think you've become far more profound than i was i was just looking at the fun in the camp did you notice that <laughs> you had depth and i had yeah, nothing no i mean you have a lot of depth as well i've done a lot of thinking about it because of yeah, our podcast yeah. but i think that's 
potentially why we connect so easily it probably could be and it's also i don't know it's it it is just a different bond it's not a it's not like a boyfriend it's not like a brother it's not like a sister although i do call one of my gay friends sister but it it is unique really it is a, a unique and it's a very for me and i think for a lot of people both the boys and the girls and the men and the women it's a very strong relationship I'm quite vulgar with my girlfriends and I tell them very intimate details yeah, about I'm my... Yeah, I'm sure. I've heard that, all that. Did you also have that? <laughs> I've got that. I've got it to this day. Were the gays <laughs> as terrible back then as they I'm are now? Probably worse. Because don't forget, <laughs> there was not such openness. So, you know, they, they couldn't find such uh, information as you might find today about sex and about what to do in bed and about how to keep yourself safe in bed. I mean, that came... That moved forward with HIV and AIDS because people were out there saying... You know, say it as it is. Otherwise, people are not going to understand what you're talking about. So, oh, yeah, you can get intimate details from your gay friends. <laughs> <laughs> you get too much. You go, oh, no, 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 no more. <laughs> I'll happily share some tea with you after the podcast. <laughs> what, what's what's the latest? What do you mean? <laughs> oh, I'm recently single, so I've been uh, a nightmare. <laughs> you, you won't be single say? for long. I don't know. I'm kind of happy. Okay. I will tell you one thing that I'm amazed by. And we should talk about prep and things like that as we get into the podcast. But... um. I recently, I think I probably slept with about 20 different guys across three continents and all my tests came back negative, which I think is incredible. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. But yeah, it did yeah. feel like I'd won the lottery. But you are as well taking precautions yeah. nowadays. So, you know, and people, trust me, people slept with that many people in the 80s as well. And still some tests came out negative. It's a virus. If you miss it, it's just lucky. Yeah. And that's all it is. You know, obviously, if you're having hundreds of partners, then you, the risk is more. If more people are coughing in your face, your risk is more of getting COVID, <laughs> isn't it? So if you are putting yourself in that position, it's going to be more chance of getting it. But you can still not get it. Yeah. Or you can sleep with one and get it. Absolutely. And that's the thing. That's the yeah. lottery, the Russian roulette behind it. A gay and a non-gay. You brought this book out, Love from the Pink Palace, and I read it in waves because i found it incredibly moving it must have been very difficult for you to write i knew i had to gear myself up to go through a whole the moments when my friends passed away because i knew that i'd have to write about that so that was the hard thing but i also did have a laugh and what is absolutely fantastic is that people i get a little bit emotional about that because people are just saying my friends names that i haven't heard for outside of our own little circle that would never have happened and yesterday somebody said to me, I was reading about Juan when I was on a flight flying home. And I thought, God, that's amazing because he would be like, yeah, come on, read about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that I think they would be so pleased about that because let's face it, they were all in the theatre. They all like to be seen and noticed, you know, and it's noticed in a way they would never have imagined. But I hope it's good. It's always interesting reading, reading or watching things set in the 80s because I'm just waiting for people to to die <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> so don't even go there oh so you read the yeah, book and you yeah, hear about all yeah. these amazing blokes and i just think oh god are any of them going to make the end of the book and i guess none of them did well some did of course they they everybody didn't die obviously because some people just lived long enough to get treatment some people remain negative but my three closest friends didn't yeah. they, they didn't survive but it's funny you said that because when we went to the very first reading of It's a Sin and Russell Davis, obviously it's a television series, so you've got to have respect to the memories, respect to the people concerned, respect to the actors and respect to the fact that Russell Davis said no spoilers. And he said, you must not say who lives or who dies. 
regarding the TV series because that is all there is. Who is going to get it and who isn't? And mm. that's the lottery of it. That's why it so surprised people when the character of Colin, you know, people didn't expect yeah. that. Like you said, I kept waiting to see who was going to die. Does everyone die? Of AIDS. I read your stuff. He says no one survives. Oh, Mommy, make them do something. I don't want to die. I saw the AIDS quilt recently. And I've oh. never, I'd never seen that yeah. before. Oh, really? Gosh. And I'd seen it uh, just after my breakup. So I think I was emotional anyway about love. And I was just so in awe of the amount of love that had been stitched quilts, into yeah. those quilts. Extraordinary. And that quilt was started in the States and it was laid across Hyde Park. It was filling a huge area of Hyde Park where we finished the Walk for Life. You know, just an incredible, what you say, stitched into it by partners and families who were open and caring and brothers and sisters and friends. It's marvellous. There's so many names that are covered up. Yes. And it says things like, this can't be uncovered until the person's parents That's right. okay it or yeah. until they're accepted for who they are. And I just find that so heartbreaking. Yeah. So do you know anyone that, that had to have their name covered? I know somebody whose name shouldn't be there, but is. I don't know who put the square there, but it was a secret at the time. And I saw his name and I thought, should I write about this person, mention his name? And then somebody else said, oh, I don't think his parents knew. I thought, well, I've seen this little square online and clearly it's him, but I better not, you know. So even now, I mean, that's now. And I'm still, I was still questioning whether to use someone's name or, and eventually I used a pretend name for that person because I felt like, oh, I don't want to upset anyone. And there was another boy whose name... His parents are alive and they still don't know. And his parents are very, very elderly. And I was asked not to use his name, which I didn't, of course. I didn't want to. I didn't set out to write something to upset someone because my belief in my heart is that the boys themselves didn't want to upset their parents at the time. So it's not something for me to do. It's, you know, It's just so obsessing because as a younger person, I... Not young, young, but like... Yeah, all right. <laughs> like you said earlier, like I'm standing on the shoulders of the people that we lost and those people to me, they're, they're heroes, they're brave. They faced that. So it, it makes me really sad that they can't be celebrated for... Not celebrated. Yes. Um, what's the word I, I totally for? know what you mean. Well, in a, in a way celebrated because, you know, we are celebrating their lives when we're allowed to say. And from my friend's point of view... Their families have come out in force behind them now, all these years later. Yeah. Whereas it was terrifying. You know, we were hiding everything and trying to pretend. I mean, Dursley was wearing layers of jumpers so that he wouldn't look so thin. He would put a jacket and a jumper and a scarf and a hat. And you think, you still don't look well. You can't really hide it. But so... So desperate, I think, were his family not to recognise it. And that's I'm talking about his parents when I say this, that they they turned a blind eye because I think somewhere in their heart, in his mum's heart, she must have known, but she just didn't want to face it. Oh, there were so many emotions and so many complicated permutations and relationships and everything because relationships aren't easy when everything's going well. You still have to think about it. But when things are on that sort of knife edge that we were on, then you try and do everything you can, really, to keep the secret. And people were keeping secrets from you as well, including, you know, some of your friends. All of that, all 
of that was going on. I mean, Derek, for instance, was literally years I thought that he had cancer. And years I would talk to my mum and say, Derek's so brave, he's had cancer. And look at him and look what he does. And, and all the time, you know, there was underlying secrecy and everything going on everywhere. And you couldn't, you couldn't say it in work and in the theatre, you'd be scared you wouldn't get a job. And what if they find out you're HIV positive and you're on a film and then you won't get insured and then you won't get a mortgage. You can't get a house. You can't get everything was linked to it. So, so I totally understood why people didn't want to say anything. Even then, though, you didn't think to sort of ask or did you just respect what you've been told? I didn't think. I, I didn't think he was lying to me. I thought he'd been very brave with, with cancer. And so he told me he had cancer and he wasn't, he was a very intelligent boy. And the story was 100% believable. It was 100%. <laughs> one, of and one of his best performances. <laughs> and I'm going, well, how is it going? And, and he'd go, oh, they've given me an all clear. And, and this went on quite a number of years. You know, I, I was thinking, God, Derek's incredible because he's had cancer. He's always so positive and upbeat about it. Actually, all the time, he was HIV positive. He was one of the first people in this country to take AZT. And he took it and it arrived at his house in a, this is what his partner told me after Derek had passed away, because I didn't know this. It, it arrived as in test tubes so he could drink it. Wow. Taste it like that. And he was, he and his partner were on the trial and they didn't know it was a blind, double blind. So somebody was having a placebo and Derek's going, it's making me ill to his partner, not to me. Can't take it any longer. And all the time it was a placebo. So it was in here. In his head, you know, I don't want to take this, the fear of it, everything. So do you think he just didn't want you to worry or to fuss rather I, than... I think once he'd got into the story in his own head, it was imperative that that was it. I don't know because I can't ask him and I would really love to ask him. Yeah, it just feels yeah. funny because you're obviously not going to go and tell anyone that no. you didn't want to know. No. So I'm just like, why didn't you just tell Jill? It feels yes, like... why didn't you just tell me? But... Honestly, at that point, he wasn't well. And people maybe don't feel like going into the whole details of it and going, why didn't you tell me? Or, you yeah, know, yeah, you just course. don't want the barrage of questions, maybe, because you're not well then. I didn't need to know all those details. It just shocked me totally when I found out the whole truth, you know. I thought the nurse, I was so convinced. <laughs> I thought the doctors have got it wrong. That was his level of, of longing for the the truth to be hidden. I'm also guessing part of it was hoping that it would just not exist if, if he didn't name it. All of that. All of that. And also, you'd have this incredible hope, which everybody does and did and would still have with anything, that they will cure it and then you never have to say anything. How have you dealt with your own trauma of this time? Have you thought about um, that? I thought about it and I think about it more now, really, when people are asking me that quite a bit, because I think we were all sort of in it at the same time. I was more concerned with dealing with the grief of losing people than thinking about the trauma. I didn't think of what everybody was going through as a as a sort of group of people facing what we were facing. That was kind of something I think was important to get on with and you had the camaraderie of your sort of close-knit community but dealing with grief is the same as dealing with grief for anybody but it comes a lot because you do one person and then another person so you have to try to I don't know I, I went some I had some advice in the hospital 
from people. There were counsellors. I was recommended somebody to speak to. So people gave me a bit of guidance on how to cope with, with grief and, you know, to deal with that and the aftermath of with families and things when somebody died of AIDS. So I, I did have some help, but I don't really know because now I look back and think, how did I? How did I? Yeah. I have no idea. I guess in a crisis, we, I mean, this is just like an extended crisis, essentially, isn't it? Yes, that's you, exactly. You just go into autopilot. And but I look at people now and how do they deal? I think, how do you deal with, you know, I, I look outside and look at people dealing with COVID and think, God, how do they deal with that? You know, saying goodbye to their mum or dad through a window. That's horrible. And I feel for that. And I think, God, how do they deal with that? And then you go back and you, you just get on with it. And then now, I think, people that dealt with that at the time are feeling it now, maybe after COVID is not over, but in a different place. So people have had to deal with all of that. And how do the health service deal with it? And how do the doctors deal with that? On and on, you know. Yeah, it's partly why I asked that question, just because I think collectively we've all had to deal with this big traumatic crisis that no one's really thinking about anymore. We're just pretending it didn't happen. And I just, I wondered if there was some echoes of that. Well, I definitely think so, because I, I hear that, you know, that... A lot of junior doctors, there's quite a high level of depression and anxiety post-COVID amongst the health service. I don't know if that's true. I just hear that hearsay kind of thing. And um, I think people are, they've gone through an enormous trauma. And somebody else said to me, you know, you have adrenaline when you're going through it. You go through it, you've got to come down the other side. There's no other way to do that. And pick yourself up again the other side of it. And that's why I think it takes a long time to get over grief. It never leaves you anyway, but you, you, it becomes part of who you are. Very profound conversation. <laughs> Sorry. It should be fun, fun, fun. <laughs> we can talk about sucking dick later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> um, we could fill Jill in on your trip to Bergheim. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I did have a wild time. Did you? Yeah, there was a guy that, do you want to know about this? I'm just well, checking, I'm, asking I'm for consent. I'm interested. I mean, you can give me I'm consent. I don't know. I'm not going to be able to compete with the story. So <laughs> well, a guy was going to piss on me, basically. Oh, but no, you see? Yeah, I thought I'd give it a go because I've not done it. Um, you might have known what that would be like, though. Well, actually, I'm lying. I had done it. Ah. A, a guy had done it to me when I was about 18 at Brighton Pride, and I was very traumatized by that. And I thought I'd give it another go. But... Unfortunately, he ran out just as he got to me because there was a row of guys. So so he was just peeing on everybody. Yeah, and then when he got to me, he'd... He'd run out of wee. He'd run out, yeah. <laughs> he ought to carry a little wee bag. Yeah. <laughs> like a little supply, yeah, ready little to go. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit sad, actually. It was a bit disappointing. But um, always, ma- maybe always next time. Thank you, yeah. Um, right, should we go back to the interview? <laughs> a gay and a non-gay. Do you think if this epidemic happened... I mean, it's still happening in certain countries, obviously. But if this happened again today in America and the UK, do you think things would be different? Well, I definitely think it would be easier to be open. There's no doubt about that. I still think, though, that people... It is a sexually transmitted disease, one of the ways you can get it. There are obviously other ways you can get it. And people are always, always have something in their minds about things that are sexually transmitted. So there's always going to be a little bit of possibly embarrassment or for some people, I know some people, you know, that's that's fine. But there, there are going to be those people who feel a bit awkward, who feel a bit judged, who have a bit of um, guilt. Because there's one thing in the world, isn't there, that, that, you know, you can go back right through history and to diseases that are sexually transmitted. And there's always a little bit of something. So I guess it would have that. I guess it would have much more honesty from people's sexuality. 
but there's still it's still a thing to come out it's still you know you have to make that decide to come out yeah to your parents or to your friends or whoever that's going to be so there's still issues obviously i think it would be easier but i still think there are people who still find it hard even today i went on a march last saturday with the terence higgins trust and the Sussex Beacon marching for the lack, take the stigma out of HIV. Because until the stigma goes, then it's going to have a problem with people being honest about it. So you you would definitely have that. But it's a lot, lot of people, people don't want to go, go high. I'm sure I've got gonorrhea diseases. So, <laughs> should we cut that out? Great quick <laughs> A lot of people don't want to go high. I'm Jill, I've got gonorrhea. So, <laughs> should we cut that out and edit that and put that out? I don't put it in like yeah. I have it. <laughs> Great clickbait. But I mean, but I guess people don't want to. You know, that, that's a, a normal thing, isn't it? People don't want to. I, I have no shame. I've tried to get rid of as much shame as possible, and I think I'm pretty proud of not proud of it, but like I will tell people. Yeah. Honestly, but, I, I would. I have a friend that I saw on the Year's Eve, and he was like, "Oh, I've got chlamydia for the third time." Yeah, um, but I think that's great because people can be that. Not that he's got it for the third time. I, right, I, do, right. I do think that it's. I do, do think that that is brilliantly healthy thing. Yeah. To be able to say that, but I don't think everybody's like that. I bumped into my ex at Dean Street because I had gonorrhea, and I've written about it. I've talked about it here. Yeah. I'm not ashamed that no. I had gonorrhea. I think I should be being more careful, perhaps. But at yeah. least I'm aware of. But he got getting health checked right. and all of that kind of thing, and that's what all the the doctors would say you know as long as you're getting health checked and you can get your treatment so it's when you catch something like when you got hiv in the 80s there was no treatment so you were getting something very different i suppose when you go back and you get got syphilis in the you know whatever era i'm not quite sure when the antibiotics came out that would treat it but obviously it's but there a different is, there's thing. definitely still a stigma about hiv 100 percent, definitely because that one is is still incurable so it's different yes it and, is and there's a definite stigma surrounding it yeah because you're going to pass it on you can't pass it on if you're on treatment and you're undetectable but if you're not and you can pass it on you're going to affect somebody else's life in a big way you're not just going to nip down the clinic and get a tablet to to get rid of the gonorrhea or whatever it's, it's going to affect someone's regime tablet regime you should do that by lives. the way you should go down the clinic I and should. get some treatment for that <laughs> <laughs> gonorrhea that you've got um <laughs> what was i going to say so funny. i wonder how you feel about prep then and obviously it's amazing but I, when it first came out there was a lot of discussion about whether it was right or if it was making gay men into super sluts and actually were we just i felt like i was disrespecting people that had passed away of all things in the world I do not think that having PrEP will make a gay man into more of a slut than they were before if they were. I think that people that want to have sex, that want to sleep around, they're going to do that anyway. Especially if you have some recreational drugs behind you. You're not going to think, oh my gosh, I must be very careful now. That's not going to happen. I mean, the only thing that you have to be careful, I suppose, is if you have any side effects from anything. That's the main thing. I mean, I think it's 100% right to take it. That's what I think. Do you think that people that that we lost would also agree with that? Oh, 100%. 100%. If you could have a tablet not to pass it on. Because once you know you've got it, it's agony to think I'm going to pass this on to someone. And when it was a, a death sentence, to be honest with someone you're going to have sex with, and then they're scared, and then you're scared, 
and the whole thing makes a horrible combination for a good night <laughs> yeah you know, my, my, my friend who came on our podcast matt he said it was it, it always felt like death was in the room when you were having sex there with someone you go. and that prep had just completely smashed through that yeah brilliant i think that's brilliant and i think you know medical science has done it made that and people should 100 percent take advantage of it have you noticed any similarities between um, what you went through and how you saw gay men being treated in, in the 80s and what we're seeing today with um, trans people? Well, definitely stigma. It's another group, it's another minority. And even though the gay men are a large, that's a minority group, but it's a huge force. There's a lot of gay people. The trans community is smaller. I think because the trans community is small right now, then they are easily stigmatised. But there's a great force behind trying to, to take stigma away and trying to, I think right now in the last few years, is the strongest force for equality that I've known in my life. All everybody wants is the same chance as the person next to them. And then if they don't succeed, it's not because of something they are. I don't know, it might be a pipe dream that, but I think we should strive for that. Why would we make people's lives harder? Life is hard anyway, just... Going from day to day, there are hardships. People get all sorts of things. Why would you make someone's life harder? I can tell that you, as a person, are someone that feels a lot. I mean, that's that goes without saying, just from the work that you've done. Um, but even just answering questions today, like I can see the emotion that you're carrying. So I'm very thankful that you've found the strength to Aww. sort of speak Well, I do feel like that. Today. I do feel like, at least in our lives, at least in your life, you know, just try and make life good for people at the basic level. At a basic, simple level of just equality of, of who we are. Thank you so much for passing oh, through. It's a really interesting, and the whole setup here, you can't see it, people that are listening, but it is absolutely brilliant in here. So, oh, thank And you. these guys are amazing. So that's true. That's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And thanks for listening, babes. Do the admin and support gay and non-gay. Visit gaynongay.com slash donate.